Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. So Moses' thrust to the nation of Israel as they are about to go into the land, the second generation, his, his thrust of these sermons that he's preaching to them is that they must first and foremost love God. This is his second sermon. The first sermon was about their history and how they needed to repent from the sins of their fathers. Um, now he is emphasizing before he gives them this whole set of laws, there's several chapters that make up this sermon. And the thrust of the sermon is you have to first and foremost love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus later adds, when asked, what is the greatest, greatest commandment? He says the same thing. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus adds the mind in his statement. And so our minds have to be transformed. And so Moses has these four sermons. He's, he's, he's prepping the nation of Israel. And he's explaining in, these, in this second sermon how do we love God? How do we love God? The first generation failed. There are some things that they really need to emphasize as a nation. And so we've seen that they've got to hold on to the commandments. Um, we've seen that they've got to uh, um, put away false gods and be very wary of them. Today we're going to look at loving God by enjoying and acknowledging his prosperity for us. So it's about, today's message is about God's desire to prosper us, God's desire to give us what is good. And so, you know, at the forefront, whenever we start to hear about God desiring his people to be prosperous or to, to that, that prosperity is a good thing from the standpoint of Christianity, there's, you know, at least from conservative folk, there's initial resistance or suspicion about prosperity. And there's justifiable reasons. We see hypocrisy in, in Christian leaders that promote prosperity. We saw it, I mean, you see it here in the New Testament with the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus would rebuke them, admonish them, and make fun of them in public for their love for money, oftentimes which was, which was gained from, from the backs of the poor. Um, and we see contemporary prosperity preachers um, that proclaim that it is God's desire for us to be, to be rich and to be wealthy. Uh, and they're usually, you know, it's usually uh, the sermon is motivated by a desire for the people to give. If they give, God is going to be generous and respond and, and reward them for their generosity. And so the problem with a lot of contemporary prosperity preachers, and we may get some, some questions about this at the end of the sermon. I'm not going to do a, a lot on it is that they hit a part of the message that is true. You can see throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that God desires that his people would be prosperous. Uh, Jesus says, I've come that they may have abundant life. Jesus, uh, Paul says that I'm, I'm excited about your gift, not just for my sake, but because it adds to your account. It's an accounting, accounting term. And, and, and so we see um, God preaching this and teaching this throughout throughout the Old and New Testaments, but the problem with prosperity preachers is that that's kind of the only thing they really emphasize. And we don't run into false doctrine and false teaching just by the accuracy of the message, but by what is also 
emphasized um, and sometimes left out. And so a lot of prosperity preachers will leave out discipleship, carrying your own cross. As Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me as I pick up mine. Um, the discipline of God, the, necess the necessity for suffering. And so there is the whole counsel of God that we've got to proclaim. Pro contemporary prosperity preachers typically just emphasize the prosperity that God wants his people to have. And so that's one form. Um, the other form, I think, of suspicion that oftentimes conservative Christians have when when discussing this issue of prosperity or hearing a message on Christian prosperity or God's desire for us to be prosperous is that they see in the scriptures, um, you know, Jesus and the apostles having lifestyles that did not re reflect, um, you know, pro material prosperity. Uh, Jesus says, I don't even have a place to lay my head. You see the apostle Paul. Um, he certainly was not a, a rich man. He was dependent upon the generosity of others. Um, and so, and there's plenty of, of teachings in the New Testament that, that seems to um, hold up the, the, the positive nature of being poor and the negative aspects of being rich. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor and woe to those who are rich. Okay, so it seems to be pretty clear that there are some troubles that come along uh, from the God's perspective of material prosperity, and there are some blessings that come along with those who are uh, more poor in, in material prosperity. But the interesting thing about um, Jesus' statements there, if you look in the, in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of, trying to hold off some of the suspicion here before I get into the meat of the message. We, again, we'll have some time for questions afterwards. Um, you know, so, so Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor, woe to those who are rich, for you have, you have experienced your consolation already here on this earth. Well, so that's an entire sermon in, in, um, in Luke chapter 7. Maybe it's chapter 6, I can't remember, but the very next text, the very next passage, is a Gentile centurion who was wealthy enough to build the synagogue for, for the Jews in that city. And so this is a, this is a, a very wealthy person. He, it would be like, you know, we're trying to raise money to build a building. This guy just came up with the cash and just wrote a check, and he built their synagogue. And, and so... His daughter is ill, and he sends the, the Jewish elders in the area to Jesus and says, hey, can you go summon Jesus for me, um, but tell him that I, he doesn't need to come, he just, needs to, he just needs to say the word, because I understand what it means to be a person in authority. If Jesus just says the word, I know he can heal my daughter. And then Jesus, he hears this from these Jewish elders, and he says to the crowds, I have not found faith like this even in all of the nation of Israel. And he ends up blessing the centurion. And so we see that, that a lot of times, and I would say especially in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke is referring to the rich or the poor, he's not referring simply to material prosperity or the lack of. He's referring to a condition of spirit. 
And so this centurion, even though he was a very wealthy man, a very powerful man, high up in the, the, the Roman stru- military structure, he was humble enough to recognize that he was not even worthy. He said, I am not worthy to be in the presence of the Son of God, who is extremely poor. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of the Son of God. All he has to do is say the word, and I know that he can do what he wants because he recognizes that even though Jesus was materially poor, he was abundantly rich because he was the Son of God. And so the centurion came to him with a, with a humble spirit. And we're going to see in this passage today where a, a humility of spirit is really, what, is really where God is wanting us to be in regard to um, our orientation towards him and how that reflects the possibility for God to bless us materially. So today's message, again, it's how do we love God? And so today it's we love God by enjoying what he blesses us with materially and alongside of a humble heart that recognizes that what we have, everything that we have, is from the Lord. And so if we look at this passage, we see that at the very beginning it says, take care lest you forget Yahweh God by not keeping his commandments. Take care lest you forget Yahweh God by not keeping his commandments. And so what leads us to forget Yahweh God? The text goes on to say, that our hearts being lifted up, which is arrogance, thinking too highly of ourselves, especially in relationship to God, our hearts being lifted up due to the neglect of commandments. And so we see here that take care lest you forget God by not keeping his commandments. And so there's this phrase that we've seen throughout the Pentateuch, uh, obey my statutes, my commandments, my rules. And so if we look at the, the full spectrum of what those words mean, what we have is a sense that God has these plans and purposes and covenants and commandments. I think we typically read those three words and just see rules and commandments. What it is is God has this plan that he is working throughout all history and all peoples, and he's made a covenant with the people of Israel, but also with all humanity. The promise to Abraham was specifically to Abraham about his offspring, which ultimately was Christ, but it it wrapped up all of the peoples of the world. And God made a promise to man and woman in the garden that he would bring a, a son, a child, who would bring life back to all humanity. And so this promise that God has, this plan that God has, um, is for all humanity, and it is by participating in that plan, by aligning ourselves with God's purposes, a part of which is keeping his commandments, that keeps us in this place of remembering and acknowledging God. When we pull ourselves out of his purposes and plan and fail to remember and keep his covenants, we become forgetful. We had a whole sermon on that a few weeks ago. We become forgetful. And he says this, lest when you have eaten and are full, satisfied with what you have to eat and drink, and have built good houses and live in them, and when you have, and when your herds and your flocks 
multiply. And so their work is being very fruitful. It's growing and growing and growing. And your silver and your gold have multiplied. And all that you have have multiplied. And so you kind of get this, this vision of, of just there's this good place of prosperity that just continues to grow. So when you get to that point and you have pulled yourself out of God's plan and promises and have forgotten his commandments and are completely forgetful, then it says, your hearts be lifted up and you forget Yahweh God. Now, we immediately begin to think that, well, material prosperity leads us to forgetting God. That's not really the case. That's not really the case. The forgetting God comes when following the commandments are neglected. We forget God when we forget that he is engaging in an eternal purpose that he's invited us into. We forget God when we, we stop renewing our minds in his teachings and commandments so that we are know how, so that we know how to govern our lives, including the material possessions that he has blessed us with. Yeah, Psalm 1, blessed is the, is, the, is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night. And then it describes that prosperity and happiness is what will follow. And so we see that reminding ourselves by renewing our minds on who God is, what he's doing, what he's called us to do and be, that is at the core. And so if we fail to abide, here's what begins to happen. The text says, you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So we forget past experiences of God's deliverance of us. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. That he might humble you and test you to do good to you in the end. So material prosperity can become numbing and deceiving. Material prosperity can become numbing and deceiving. Just like poverty can, become, can lead to bitterness and anger. All right? The condition of our hearts is what is the issue. He says, you say in your heart. So material prosperity can become numbing and deceiving. And it says, you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So that's what happens. We, we stop engaging in the, in the promises and the teachings of God. We, we've grown in our material prosperity, and that numbs us to reality. Look what I have done. I have acquired this. It has been my mind, my strength, my power that I have become wealthy and prosperous. So again, the inclination is for us to make rules around material prosperity to avoid temptations. Like, okay, if material prosperity is going to lead me down the road to forget God, then I don't want to be material, materially prosperous, and I, want to, and I want to teach that to others as well. That's not the problem. The problem is failing to abide and failure to remember who God is, which automatically leads you into 
arrogance. Hearts that are lifted up. Here's what God's desire is. The text says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So there's three important words here in this statement that, that God says specifically. There's the word power, which refers to our capability or capacity. Okay, so all of us have different capacities. Some have a lot of capacity for work and acquiring fruit of our labors and wealth. Some of us have less capacity. Regardless, God has given us all a capacity for work and for acquiring wealth. Then there's might. So there's capacity and then there's strength. All right? There's strength. There's the, ability, there's the, the force and energy that we're able to put into something. So there's the scope of what we can do, and then there's the intensity at which we pursue it. And again, all of us have different capacities and energies. Just like when, when, when the New Testament is speaking on spiritual gifts, sometimes the Spirit gives an abundance of, of faith for a gift to be utilized extremely fruitfully. Or Jesus in his teachings, it says, some people have the capacity for five, uh, what is, um, what's the word? I can't remember. Um, fivefold, tenfold, or a hundredfold, all right? God isn't asking all of us to be at a hundredfold. All of us have different capacities. All of us have different energies that we put into it. And for the purpose of, and this, this is the word in the text. I didn't put it there. Wealth. It is God's desire to, to give us capacities and to give us energies for acquiring and multiplying wealth, which is property, it's profit. And he says this, here's the reason, all right, here's the reason why God gives this power, might, capacity, and wealth, that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to his fathers as it is to this day. He says, God, God says that I have given power, I have given energy, I have given capacity for the purpose of obtaining and multiplying wealth in order that I would make good on my promise. In order that I would make good on my promise. God's promise was that they would multiply their material wealth. And when that, would, and that, one, and when that happened, it would affirm God is a promise-keeping God. When I read through this in preparation, because I, I, you know, I was put the outline of this series together, but then I started work or, working deeper into this passage, I just find that to be an amazing statement. Now, there are challenges to this. There are challenges to experience this. And again, I'm trying to get done in time so that we've got plenty of time for questions. The challenge for us to experience this, the first and foremost one, is unbelief. Just like Israel, the first generation, when they got to the border of the promised land. God's not going to, to give us victory over these giants and these massive fortresses. Why would God do that? Let's elect a new leader to take us back to Egypt. 
We often ask, why would God want to do that kind of good for us? Why would he do such amazing things? Why would God want to bless us with multiplying wealth? Why would God do such a good thing? I would say, why would God create these things in the first place? God didn't create earth for him. God didn't create all of the abundant food and resources that he does for him. He made it for humanity. God desires humanity to enjoy what he has created, especially those who call upon his name, his people. For us to enjoy and multiply what God has given to us is an expression of the fulfillment of God's intent for humanity. Now, it has been corrupted, absolutely. We have been corrupted, absolutely. But it is still what God's purposes are. Yes, there are temptations for us to abuse all right, or worship what God has created. Absolutely. Yes, there are plenty of manifestations of evil to where material prosperity is used to destroy. But these are all aberrations and perversions and corruptions of what God has created with his intent. His primary intent has been for humanity, especially his people, to enjoy these things and to fully express his intent, which is to have material prosperity and for it to multiply and grow. It is a means for us to know and enjoy him. <clears throat> that is the intent. It is, it is part of the way, not all of the way, but it's part of, the, of what it means to know the Lord. When we know that he is an, an amazingly creative and powerful and beautiful and abundantly supplying God. Later in the New Testament, because, you know, we read this and we say, well, this is for the nation of Israel. And we can, again, have some more questions about this later. Well, not exactly. Okay, so if you, if you it's, Israel didn't have the book when they were in the land. There are several apostles that in the New Testament says, these things were written for our behalf. These things were written for our behalf. They had the word of God through Moses directly, okay? So they heard these sermons, but they were written down and put into Scripture for our behalf. So these are words for us. These are words for us. If you can think of some of the, the parables that Jesus taught towards the end of his ministry when he's preparing disciples for when he's gone, a number of the parables talk about stewards who receive talents and they are to use those talents until the king returns. And the good stewards have taken, whether it's five or ten or one, they've taken the talents that God has given to them, that the king has given to them, and they have used it to multiply those talents and to care for the household. Okay, that's the parables. And so what Jesus is saying in these parables is that I am giving you talents, I am giving you capacities, I am giving you abilities. 
I'm giving you material things. You need to steward these for the kingdom. You need to steward these for the household. Because when I'm coming back, I want to see that what I have given you has grown with the power of the Holy Spirit and with hard work and abiding by the teachings and commandments. I want to see that what you have been given has grown and contributed to the benefit of the kingdom of God and to the household of God, which is his church. The other thing, the other challenge... Now, let me make one more statement. So obviously there are times when we experience financial hardship. So this isn't a promise that you're never going to suffer financially. This isn't a promise that you're going to be rich. Okay, that's not what is being taught here. What the text is saying is that we have a variety of capacities, we have a variety of energies, and all of us are to use them to acquire wealth. Okay, property, profit, Some of us are going to have a little, but it's going to grow. Some of us are going to have a lot, and it's going to grow. That is what God is doing. Now, again, some of us are are going to have financial hardship, either because of just the world and sin and corruption, but that is not where things need to stay. God is at work. Some of us make stupid decisions and sin with our finances and experience financial hardship. Some of us are sinned against and we experience financial hardship. Some of us are starting new businesses and that takes investment and and debt and it's going to be a few years till you get out of lean times. So these are all realities. But what God is wanting to do with our work, with our energy, with our capacities is to multiply and grow what we have for the benefit of the kingdom and for the benefit of his household. The other challenge that we have to experiencing this is that we forget, just like the text says, we forget God. We stop abiding in his word. We forget about what God is doing eternally. We forget about the promises he's made and we stop obeying his commandments and we stop contributing to the welfare of the kingdom and of the local church, which is his household. And then we have hearts that get lifted up, and then we begin to see that everything that we have and everything that we do and everything that we are is a product of our own selves and that we don't need God anymore. So those are the challenges. Unbelief, why would God want to be that good to me? Or forgetting. Or forgetting. Now, we live in a world that is deceived in regard to material possessions. I just took a random sampling of several books that I have on my shelves, three of them from from secular sources. So Dr. Madeline Levine wrote a book called The Price of Privilege, and she is an adolescent psychologist and psychiatrist. And she's been in practice for like 30 years. And here's what she has seen over the course growing in her practice, adolescents coming in whose parents are very wealthy, very attentive, but she's seen that the adolescents are becoming less and less happy. They have a lot of stuff, but they're less and less happy because their parents aren't giving them what they really need. A sense of identity, a sense of community, an understanding of God's eternal purposes and plans, a way to see that there's meaning and purpose in their life beyond having things. Dr. Uh, Michael Sandel, or the, the philosopher at Columbia, Michael Sandel, 
he has a book called What Money Can't Buy. It's a great book on just, here's all the things that, that we have monetized, but that really can't be monetized. But in our monetization of everything, we, we are missing out on the, the things that make an enduring nation. He's writing, it's kind of a political philosophy book. But he says, in our monetization of everything, we have forgotten civic virtue. We have forgotten to live for the betterment of humanity. We just live to get money and buy things. David Brooks, this week in the New York Times, he's got an article about the, how the world is getting sadder. He says, you know what? All of the statistics from a material prosperity standpoint point to the fact that the world is getting richer. M millions and millions of people are being brought out of poverty each and every year because of technology and globalization. But what is, what's also happening throughout the nations is that sadness is increasing. The Monsignor James Shea is a Catholic uh, writer. He wrote this little book called Christendom um, and Apostolic Mission. It's a book, it's about 80 pages long. I read it when I was in India. And basically what he's saying is like, Christians, we need to get out of this mindset that, the, that um, we are in a place of, of power like we used to be 50 years ago or 100 years ago when, you know, when Christian culture was kind of dominant. He says, we've got to get into the mode of apostolic mission. The world is opposed to us. We are on the side of the Lord, and um, we're fighting against terrible odds. He says that, but, but he describes what the, the, the world and the deception that it's under. He says, the modern progressive vision is all around us incessantly hammered home with all the pervasive power of electronic imagery and consumer affluence, but compared to the one given us by God, the vision, it is a weak and anemic vision. From its beginnings, its claims have been unreal, and it has been so weakened by generations of dismal human experience that it can now be sustained only by economic prosperity and the apparent lack of a good alternative." So he says, you know what, what's, what's happening in our world is that economic prosperity has become this, this numbing force that, that numbs us and blinds us from what's really going on. Again, the conclusion, the, 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 the situation, the challenge is not the presence of material prosperity. The challenge is our hearts. The challenge is our hearts. And then in the end there, God says, you know, you, you've forgotten that the discipline that I've engaged in your lives really brought about good. Really brought about good. So God provides discipline to, tests, to test our hearts. When we forget God and our place before him, the humble place like the centurion had before Jesus, when we forget this humble place before God, our hearts are lifted up. And so, so again, what, what is needed is a heart change. What is needed is a heart change. You know, we're studying the, the Gospel of Luke right now in our, in our Luke and Acts class on Thursday nights. And one of the things that we're, we're increasingly seeing is that, you know, Jesus is, 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 is calling out to people to follow him with this promise of a changed heart. And what you see in the Gospels, what you see in the Gospels is kind of, two different ways that Jesus provides this changed heart. 
There's this once-for-all change. And he, and he, Come and be my disciple. Repent. Believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God. Believe upon me. So there's this moment where we have to make a decision. Am I going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ or not? Am I going to pursue what is life and life abundantly or not? Or am I going to pursue these false idols? And where Jesus says, what benefit is for you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? So that is the challenge that we all have as humans before Christ. Are we going to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and eternally live in his kingdom or lose our soul to what Jesus says are the fires of hell? So there's this once-for-all decision where we need to make. I'm going to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that has to be a commitment and a turn that we make, that turn of repentance. And then there's this ongoing process that Jesus says is a cleansing. So in John's narration of the Last Supper, you know, Jesus takes a towel and a wash basin and then goes around and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And Peter says, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, um, Jesus, if, or Paul, Peter, if, you, if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part of me. And Peter says, okay, then give me a bath, Christ. Give me a bath. And Jesus says, you don't need a bath. You're already clean. You just need to wash your feet. And so it's a metaphor of having made that first decision to, to believe and follow Jesus Christ as a disciple of his, we then have a need to, our, our hearts are clean, They've been cleansed, we've had the bath, but we're in need of this ongoing cleansing. We're in need of this ongoing foot washing. And that is what abiding in the word of God does. That is what participation in a local church does. And so Jesus provides both of these things. The change of heart that comes when the Holy Spirit is... is poured out upon us upon faith and belief that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and I want to give my life to Him. That Holy Spirit comes into us and then the Holy Spirit, through the Word, through abiding in the Word, through the, through the church and the ministry of the church to us as individuals, we are cleansed and we experience this ongoing cleansing. And the first epistle of John even says that, that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so Jesus is, if we are abiding in God and, and live a life, wholehearted life before him that's honest and open, confessing our sin not only to, to Christ but to other people, then Christ is doing this work of maturing and cleansing us along the way. With the promise... With the promise, what Jesus says, an abundant life, prosperity, <clears throat> but happiness with it. And it's a great deception in our world that material prosperity will make us happy. When I think in our experience, we know that's not the case. Material prosperity is good. It's a sign of God's blessing. But another sign of God's plus blessing is happiness that goes along with it. So this Wednesday... Um, we're, we're canceling house churches this week, and we're, gonna, we're trying to have, it's not just a business meeting, it's an all-church meeting where we want to present the vision of the church. Here's who we are, here's what we're doing. We're going to hear some more quotes from this Monsignor Shea, who's just got some great pithy statements on what it means to live as an apostolic community in this world that's increasingly not like us. It's not like home.
So our vision and plan, why we're making this shift, so we've talked about it in house churches, why we're making this shift to put house churches on Sundays, what that means for us, but not just that. You know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the, getting the building campaign going again and some of the needs that we have as a community. But what our vision is and what kind of a community and church that we want to be uh, into the coming years and decades and, Lord willing, generations, how that's connected to what, what else we're doing here in the Twin Cities and, and to what we're doing with India, which is just an amazing opportunity that we have to, to help establish the foundations for a network of house churches in a place where there is a lot of poverty. Um, but this, this little network, um, I just got some report back from Vinay this week, this little, this little network is reaching 7,400 people right now, which is like three or four times what it was prior to the pandemic. And so it's just this exploding, spontaneous expansion of the church there with these folks um, who have become clearer on the gospel as a result of our ministry to them, which is transforming their lives in a way that's really attractive to the world around them and it's drawing a lot of people. So again, Wednesday night, we want to we talk about this. Um, and I bring it up now because it's what, it's, it's, it's what God is doing through us. We are just one little manifestation of his kingdom. We're one little local church, but it's ours. And we're in this place. Here's what we see it means to participate in God's purposes and plans and his commandments and statutes. And it's going to take energy. It's going to take that. It's going to take capacity. It's going to take energy. And it's going to take wealth. And so Wednesday night, we want to kind of wrap up all of those things and talk about that and, and help us to put these changes that are run right in front of us into a bigger context and grow our commitment and devotion to these things. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the, uh, the, this message. Thank you for the statements, these clear statements on what your plans and desires are for your people. And our prayer, Lord God, is that you would simply strengthen us to grow in our, in our understanding and of our participation of what you're doing, that we may experience your blessing in our lives. And that we would use what you bless us with for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the welfare of your church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.